Morning, church. It's good to be home. Lisa and I last uh, week were in Orlando, and I spoke at a church down there. Exciting, a lot of young people, and uh, I enjoyed it, but there's no place like home, right? It's a blessing to be here today. You know, Robert talked about memories, and I have so many uh, for all my years here. At WFR, it's, you know, I started out um, school of preaching at 23 years old. And so quite naturally, since all of my mentors uh, here were uh, much older than me, I was known as the kid, you know. And even as I grew older, I, I sort of began to resent that because I was like, well, I'm a grown man. You know, I got kids. I, and, and I was still always the kid because of my mentors. I realize now at 53... There's not many places I can go and be a kid anymore. I'm one of the older guys now uh, in most places I go. But I did find a place. So those of you, if you're feeling like me and you're like, man, I wish I could be a kid again, go to physical therapy. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? How many of you have gone to physical therapy before? All right, you know, right? I mean, I went in there, I felt like a kid again. Everybody in there was 80 and 90 years old had all kinds of problems, and they were looking at me doing my therapy and thinking, man, I wish I had that energy. And I thought, I think I'm just going to come here about twice a year just to make myself feel better, whether I need it or not. So I did find that out, Kellett. And you know, too, right? Because you've been, you know, you're one of the older guys I was talking about, though. Um, <laughs> one of my mentors, right? Uh, it's exciting to uh, continue uh, in this um, series uh, that Mike and Trent have been preaching. I'm kind of coming in late into the uh, to the party here, but we've been talking about the seven deadly sins, and and of course this is gluttony, greed, sloth, which is a great old word, um, laziness is what we say, lust, vanity or pride, envy, which is what I'm going to be talking about today, and wrath. Uh, we'll we'll be the one to close it out. This is uh, this list is loosely based uh, on Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. I say loosely because it's not exactly uh, that passage, but that's kind of the root of these seven uh, sins that became known throughout time as the seven deadly sins. And I don't know about you, but as I was preparing and thinking this week about envy, I was thinking, why are these sins on this list so deadly? Because, you know, there's a lot of lists of sins in the Bible. And so it got me to thinking, are, are sins really different? I mean, I know they're different in terms of that they're different things happen, but are, are they different? And I came up with two answers, yes and no. It depends on your perspective. From God's perspective, and you can read about this in Romans 5 through 8, sin is pretty much just sin. You sin, you die. And you say, well, what does that mean? That means when God says something and you don't do it, you sin. When you sin, you put yourself under the law of sin and death, meaning that apart from God, you can do nothing about that sin. Whether it was don't eat from that tree, whether it was codified law that came down in a scary way to a mountain, or whether it was the human heart that knows internally what's right and what's wrong. And so when God says you sin, you die. 
But he also said you embrace Christ's sacrifice for sin and you live. You put yourself under, according to Romans, the law of spirit and life. So from God's perspective, it's that simple. And sin is sin. Now, from a human perspective, from our perspective, it's quite different. We know that sin is different in terms of impact and consequence, even functionality. You take one of the lists uh, from especially the New Testament, you see murder, sexual immorality, lying, stealing, gossip and slander, witchcraft, and on and on and on. Those sins have a definitive action, right? You do something. And when it's done, you know you've done it, and usually other people will know as well. There are observable results. They impact other people, and typically they bear consequences, and they bear consequences fast. You go and have an affair. You may think you're going to keep it hidden, but you won't because the evil one knows exactly when to spring open that trap door. And then, of course, there's pain and agony for many. That's what sin does. So when I look at that list, I think, man, that seems a lot more deadlier than our list, right? I mean, because people kill each other over stuff like that, and that's a sin as well. So I wonder, what is it about our list that's so deadly? And here's what I came up with. This list of sins, and I'll get to envy in a minute, these are dark doors. These are internal mental incubators. And they take time to build, but they're so deadly in what they do to the person before they ever get to that other list. Because, by the way, these sins lead to the other list. It just starts in the mind. A person catches your eye, and you have a thought about some possibility. It's a weakness. It's a moment. It's a lust moment. And I dare say that probably every one of us in here today have had those moments. Now, the question is, what happens next? Keith Powell's famous notice and dismiss, which I've always loved because it's so simple. You see something, the thought crosses your mind. Did I sin? Yeah, God said don't do that. Don't look at people like that. But then you make a decision. Do I say, don't, don't think about it. Don't look at her. Don't do that. That's not right. And not look back. Or does my mind begin to go through a dark door? Do I linger? Do I fantasize? What happens when you start desiring to open yourself up more and more to lust? On a computer, on a Facebook friend list, or whatever it is that the evil one is using in your heart. You start to see why these are so deadly. Because they start in the mind, they're insidious, and then you stoke it more and more. And the action becomes inevitable, but it destroys the person along the way. That's what the evil one wants. Isn't what Jesus talked about in Matthew five twenty-eight? He talked about a transition, right? He says they were talking about committing adultery. He said, well, if I've lusted in my heart, I've already thought about it. I've already done it in my heart, in my mind. It's just a matter of time before I get my body where my heart is. That's what he's talking about. Paul was even more graphic in Romans 1. He jumbled our list together, and he shows what happens. He says people will become senseless, lose your senses. 
you think about it, you got five senses. What happens when none of those senses point you to something good, only to something evil? When you lose that, you become senseless. Have you ever said when something happens, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they do that? They're senseless. Where does that lead to? Faithless. When I'm going to rely now on my inner humanity and I've lost that connection to God, I go from senseless to faithless. I lose my way and I lose my way out. I'm faithless. He says, then they become heartless without a connection to God. Now my heart's not doing anything good anymore. I'm only driven by base instinct. And by the way, this can happen on either side of the cross. It's sad and terrible. How did he end it? Ruthless. Ruthless sinners. You ever seen it before? You ever experienced it? Anybody is capable of anything. We get to thinking in our minds like, well, you know, you know, I, I would never do that. She would never do that. He would never do that. Anybody is capable of anything if you go down that Roman road of sinful living. So now you see why this list is so deadly? Dark doors. Well, let's talk about envy. You got that, by the way, because I'm coming into the series halfway. So that was for free. Now, here's what I came to preach about. Envy. Envy is another one of those sins, just like I mentioned with lust. I I would dare say that probably everybody in this room will have an envious moment from time to time. It's a sin. It's what we do. You look at some situation and you think, man, I wish I had that or I wish I wish that was me. And it's a moment. Is it a sin? Yeah. God said, don't do that. Trust me. Be glad about other people's success. This week, I'm flying back from Orlando. A lot of times, Lisa and I, because we travel so much, we're like super high status on all these point systems, and it's just a whole thing. But anyway, we we get to fly first class quite often. And I have to say, it's a pretty good little party up there in first class. They treat you better. I'm just saying. You in the commercial where the guy's looking in there and everything looks so wonderful, and it's like, you know, and the thing, that little veil closes, the holy of holies, you're out. So... Because we're taking our grandkids down on this trip, even though I was speaking, we're in coach. Of course, you get economy plus, which puts you just outside the Holy of Holies, (laughs) which is not a good idea. Because as you're sitting there and you're looking through the thin veil and you're smelling the roasted peanuts and the cookies they're cooking up their front and you're looking at your little bag of stale peanuts that you can't even get open. It's easy to have an envious moment. I had one. I sinned. I'm admitting it right now. I'm repenting to all of you. Now, the difference is, if I sit there for that whole flight and I think, I mean, this isn't right. Why did those people get to sit up there? These rich people. These people with all their status and points. Why do I have to sit back here? You know what? I hope they die on these cookies. I hope they choke. I hope they get sucked out of the aircraft. I didn't think that. Because that's when you begin to go through the dark door. When you look at other people and you resent what they have or what they do. 
I resent you for that. I mean, you shouldn't do that. You start to brood over words like what's fair and unfair. That's when you start going through that dark door of envy. You become bitter over the success of other people. A lot of internal eye rolls is what I call them. Somebody gets up and they tell a story about some blessing they had or whatever, and inside you're going, I mean, really? Do we have to hear this again? We get it. Your life is good. You ever had those thoughts? You're getting deeper. And then maybe you take that next step. And this is where you start to get in that other list. You actively attempt to impugn that person's motives that you're so envious of. You assassinate their character on a regular basis. And if you can find somebody to talk about it with you, and you will, you will trash them because you're jealous. Gossip, slander, malice, wrathful vengeance, glee over other people's failures. That's what happened with Job, didn't it? His three dopey friends came in and they looked at him and they said, well, look at your sad sack life. Of course you've done something wrong. And he said, I can't figure out what it was. Well, you wouldn't have all this bad stuff, have you? They were gleeful, even, about the tragedies that had struck this successful man. I dare say, and the Bible doesn't say this, so I'm just guessing, I bet they were jealous of Job and all of his servants and all of his cows and goats and kids. And it was almost like they were glad that he went through a hard time. God said at the end of Job that those guys were dopes. That's not exactly what he said in the Hebrew, but he said they were idiots and that Job was right. Envy is ugly when it's practiced. So, two important questions this morning. How do I deal with someone like that? Because I want to look at it from both sides. Sometimes you're the person who's not jealous or envious, and yet you know there's other people like that. Almost every one of us probably knows someone like that and may even know someone that has aimed that at us. How do I deal with somebody like that? And the second question, which is even more important, is if this is you that I'm describing, how do I change my inner thinking? Because I don't want to be that person, and you shouldn't be that person. It destroys. You realize the Bible says when bitter envy sets up in a heart, it causes trouble and it defiles many. And it begins with you. It defiles. So I thought about in the Bible, there's a lot of great stuff about it, about envy and about, you know, not to do that. Because I could just end the sermon here and say, just repent, don't do that. Sing the the song, Mike, and we're done. But I thought it was important because I think both questions, whether how do I deal with somebody or if it's me, how do I deal with it in my own life, are answered in one biblical story. Now, it's a big story, so I can only give you the cliff note version of it today because it it consists from Genesis 27 to Genesis 50. Half the book of Genesis deals with three generations of bitterness and difficulty and strife, and ultimately an inability to forgive each other. And it's not broken until one man breaks the cycle. And jealousy is all throughout. I'm talking, of course, about the story of Joseph, but you've got to go back a little bit. 
you got to go back to dear old dad. Jacob, you, you remember, was a young man, and he deceived Esau, his older brother, out of his birthright and blessing. And, I mean, it was just straight-up deceit. In fact, Jacob's name means deceiver. So when this happened and Esau found out about it, of course, he's livid. And from that point forward, it started something in his heart and life of resentment and bitterness that he really never got over. He had a moment where he almost did, but we know from the rest of the Bible he didn't. He became envious and jealous of his younger brother for what he stole from him. Now, remember, it was rightfully his. So we would say, well, he was justified in that. But that's what happens. See, we start thinking like that. I mean, it's mine. You can't take that. How do you react and respond? Jacob, for all of his running and trouble, because he knew Esau was going to kill him, he takes off and he gets a little 14-year humility lesson in what it means to be a deceiver. You will be deceived. And he was. He winds up with four wives and ultimately 12 sons. Now, you talk about a blended family. This one was in the blender, as they say. And when it shook itself out, it was not pretty. There was intrigue and all this backbiting and difficulty. And so these, these sons are being raised up in a terrible environment of backbiting and jealousy and bitterness. Finally, we get down to the last two because Jacob's favorite wife of the four couldn't have a child. So she had the last two as she was older. And, of course, those become the favorites, Joseph and his younger brother, Benjamin. Now, what happens with a favorite son, maybe these, you realize this in your family, especially if you're not the favorite son or not the favorite daughter, it's easy to be jealous and envious. It's not right. Why, do, why does he get the coat? Why does she get this? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? It's ugly. It's ugly in a family when someone trashes their brother or their sister just because they're favored for whatever reason. We start having those feelings, right? It's unfair. This is not right. Something's got to be done. I've got to get her down to my level. So Joseph is 17 years old, and that's important to remember. 17. When you look down here at this group of people over here, some teenagers, and you've got to remember he's 17. He's got a tremendous blessing and a gift because he can interpret dreams, and so which made him a little bit... You know, I mean, think about it. A 17-year-old that's very gifted, come on. You were 17 at one point, right? If you were really good at something, did that make you humble or not? And he wasn't that humble. And he would tell his brothers. He knew how to push their buttons. Not smart, but he's 17. He gets this coat of many colors. I mean, it's an ornamental robe, and he gets it, and he's walking around. It's like he's got his letter jacket on. I got all my stuff on here. And look at me. Well, his brothers, their envy grew to hatred. And they began to look inside and say, what can we do to hurt our brother? We want to take him down. They became murderous. You say, man, can envy lead to murder? It did in this story. They saw him coming and they said, we're fixing to kill him. Now, the older brother... And I can relate to this. I had some wisdom. <laughs> and said, we can't 
We can't kill, we can't kill him. I mean, come on. I hate him too, but I mean, we can't do that. And so he talked to him and just throwing him in a hole, which was still pretty rough. He goes to figure out a plan to get him out of the hole once they've all left him out there and kind of got over their anger. And while he's gone, they sell him into slavery. And so when he gets back, he realizes that we have now crossed a place that there's no coming back from. I mean, he's gone. So then they came up with this lie that he was dead, and they crushed their own father. And then they lived that lie for over 25 years. You tell me that envy and jealousy can't do terrible things to a family. What about uh, Joseph and all this? He winds up in Potiphar's house, who is a person in Pharaoh's court. So he wound up in a pretty good gig. He was successful because God had a purpose and a plan for him, but he didn't know what it was. And wouldn't you know it, out of all the places that he could have landed, that Potiphar was married to one of the desperate housewives of Egypt, Mrs. Potiphar. She didn't have a name, so I call her Mrs. P whenever I talk about the story. Mrs. P sees Joseph comes in. Remember, he's a, he's a strong-looking young teenager, you know, from some exotic place far off. And she's like, got to have him. And so she starts working on him, trying to get him to sleep with her. Joseph kept avoiding her, running from her, getting out of the scenario. Finally, she just says one day, this is going to happen today. And she'd made her mind up. And so she's like, physically, I'm going, you are going to sleep with me today. And Joseph said something incredible, which shows you, even though he's young and he's got some arrogance, there's something in this man that's good. He said, how could I do such a wicked thing? And he didn't say sin against my boss, sin against your husband, sin against myself or you. He said, how could I do this and sin against God? See, he knew even at that young age that God was with him and had given him a gift. He sputtered in how to get it out there, but he trusted in that moment. He runs away from her. She grabs his coat. He loses his second coat. And then, of course, she tried to join the Me Too movement. And she falsely accused him of trying to rape her. I've always wondered because... Do you think Potiphar really knew how Mrs. P was? He's married to her. She's trying to sleep with the help. You think he really knew? I mean, is he just in the dark? Because he comes back and she says he tried to rape me. I'm thinking internally he's like, yeah, right. Yeah, I bet he was after you. Yeah. But what's he going to do? High-ranking, Pharaoh's court. You can't take the word of a slave over your wife, even though she is desperate. So he sends him to prison, which is bad. When that happens, you do the right thing. But you know what? He put him in Pharaoh's prison so he could keep an eye on him and probably keep him safe. I think it's because he knew that Joseph was a man of character. Why would he put him in charge of everything? And he knew that Mrs. P was a conniver, which she was. Joseph goes to prison. He meets a baker and a bartender. It's a long story, but basically he gets forgotten in that prison. And now Joseph is desperate. Because he told the bartender when he got out, he said, you got to remember me. you got to get me out of here. I don't need to be in this prison. 
but he stayed a few more years. Fast forward, Joseph's 30 years old. Now think about this. This odyssey started when he was 17. Now he's 30. Do you guys remember the stretch from 17 to 30? Those are pretty good years, wouldn't you say? I mean, in terms of energy and strength and, you know, vitality. Some of his best years are gone. How would that make you feel? He gets recognized by Pharaoh because he can interpret dreams. Of course, we know he's seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And once again, he gets put in charge of everything. And you say, that's a pretty amazing story in Joseph. To go from being cast out by his brothers through this 13-year odyssey to now being in control of all of Egypt, only answering to Pharaoh himself. But that's not what made Joseph great. And this is the heart of our story today. He was stripped of his coat twice, but never his character. If you ever think to yourself, you know what, I'm worried about my reputation. Don't worry about your reputation. Worry about your character. And your reputation will take care of itself. Yeah, but what if somebody's talking bad about me? Then they talk bad about you. Is your character strong or not? We worry so much more about our reputation rather than our character. Joseph didn't lose his. He was stripped of his family, but not his future, because he ultimately knew God would bring him out. He was stripped of his position multiple times, but never his purity. Even in the darkest moment, he trusted God. He was stripped of his accomplishments, but never his attitude. You know what made him great? Was all these years later, now we're talking almost 25, the brothers showed up. He's married now. He's fully Egyptian, probably in the way he looks and carries himself. They don't recognize him at all. This guy now who they have to come to to get some food. But he knew them. Now, he had a choice, vengeance, which he was fully in his right to do, or forgiveness. You wonder how to deal with people that are jealous of you? Forgiveness, empathy, love, not trading blow for blow. That's what Joseph did. The key moment in Genesis 45 He kisses his brothers, he weeps over them, and he says, this was God's plan. I forgive you. This was all about me getting here. In fact, later in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer would say, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. He even looked forward into the future to see what God would do because he had a heart that was willing to forgive other people. That's how you deal with envy. You forgive. You love. You notice and dismiss. You say, well, what about if it's me? If it's you, you've got one key thing that you have to do. You've got to believe that God can deliver you from anything. You've got to believe that with all your heart. God can do anything. 
Yeah, but you don't know. I mean, I've been so put upon and trodden. And, and I, I mean, it's been bad in my whole life and I was raised this way. Is God big enough or not? That's what you have to believe. He either is or he isn't. Joe Beam tells a story. It's one of my favorites. In a book he wrote called now called Getting Past Guilt. Joe was 28 years old, fresh in ministry, little church in Alabama. And one of the deacons, who was a guy that he looked up to as a mentor because he's young in ministry, even though he's the man, he knows he's 28 years old and he doesn't know a lot. And there was this older man that was there, and his name was Bobby. And he said, Bobby set up an appointment said, i got to come talk to you about something. So Joe's like excited that he's coming in. He's thinking they're going to talk about spiritual things, maybe some sermon he preached. And he comes in, he's like downtrodden. And he said, Bobby, what's up? He said, man, I, I just, I got a major problem. I don't know what to do about it. I need you to fix it for me and help me. And, of course, Joe said, man, inside, I mean, I just turned to jelly because this guy was the most spiritual godly man I know. He said, well, what, what, what is it? He said, 15 years ago, I was in a willful sin situation, and I just can't get past it. And he said, well, wh- what was it? What happened? He said, well, I was stationed in Germany. I was in the Army. I was there a whole year, and I never went to church the entire time I was there. And he was broken. And Joe said he's thinking in his mind, and then what? And so what happened? I mean, you didn't go to church, and was there, like, immorality? I mean, he's, like, trying to get him to that other list. And he said, he looked at me and said, son, what are you talking about? I mean, I made a decision not to do what God told me to do. And I need, I can, I've been living with this guilt for 15 years. I don't know what to do. Help me. And Joe says that in a moment, sometimes, especially when you're young and you don't know what you're doing, and I've been there before, he said, God gives you something. So he looked at Bobby and he said, Bobby, let me ask you something. He said, uh, Jeff, how old is Jeff, your son? Ten. So if you told Jeff to feed your hunting dogs that you have out there in the pen in the morning, and you come back that afternoon, your dogs are laying around, wilted, you can tell they haven't eaten, and you say, hey, and you see Jeff, he's over there playing with the kids. You, you call him over and say, did you feed the dogs? And he says, no, sir, Dad, I forgot. I'm so sorry. And he said, well, look, it's okay, but when I tell you to do something, you do it. He said, would that be about the way it would go? And he said, well, yeah. He said, what if you come on the next day, and instead of playing with his friends, Jeff's sitting under a tree, and he's mopey and all that, and you say, hey, what's the matter, son? He said, you know, I didn't feed those hunting dogs yesterday. I'm so sorry. I just, I, don't, I can't believe I didn't do that. You'd probably tell him, look, son, we talked about that yesterday. It's okay. Just... Do what I tell you. Fast forward eight years. Jeff's graduating high school. Everybody's excited. You're there. The family's there. And instead of walking across the stage and getting that diploma, he's just standing over in the corner and he's moping and he's sad. And you're like, what's the matter? He said, Dad, those hunting dogs. I I just, I, I can't believe I let you down like that. Now, Joe says by now he's looking at Bobby and tears are beginning to form his eyes because he's starting to understand where this is going. He doesn't say anything. He said, Bobby, what if Jeff is 25 years old? He's coming home with your grandson. 
and you hadn't seen him, and you were so excited. And when he gets there, he's looking all downcast, and you're like, what's the matter, son? And he says, oh, those hunting dogs. He said, what would you say if that happened 15 years after an incident like that? And he said, he looked at him, and now he was crying. He said, I'd say he didn't believe his daddy. And Joe just raised his hands and said, I think you know where the answer to your problem is. You have to believe that God has a capacity to do anything and everything. Willful sin or unwillful sin, all sin. You either trust in the cross and the gospel that saves you or you don't. And when you don't, sin rules in your life. Forgiveness. It's possible both ways. And that's the ultimate answer to any of these sins on the list. So this morning, not knowing where you guys are, maybe you're on one side of this or the other. Maybe the story moved you to something and you're not sure what. Three things I would tell you to do. First of all, allow the Father to respond to your request. So many times we have requests, but we don't allow him to respond to us. That's what he did in Christ, didn't he? He responded to our problem, our sin problem, by sending him here to die for us. He responded to our problem of going to a six-foot hole by raising him from the dead. He responded to our ongoing weakness problems by bringing Jesus back to heaven to be our representative. Isn't that what he does, is respond? But so many times we're like, man, I wish something would happen, and then we just go right on. We don't allow him to respond in our heart. Number two, allow Christ to redeem your sinfulness through his sacrifice. He came here to die for you. So it may be any of these sins on the list, or it may be something we hadn't even talked about. And you say, well, I just, oh, just, oh, I've been carrying this guilt. Believe today that Jesus did what he said he did. And embrace that. And live a life full of joy, not bitterness. Other people succeed. If envy is your thing, you're like, man, praise God for that. That is so good. Not sitting there thinking, man, I hope you fall. What a Debbie Downer that is. Who wants to live like that? Number three, allow the Holy Spirit to reign over your heart and your decisions. That's what the Spirit does. And trust me, when He bears fruit, it only makes you better, not worse. So today, if there's a need you have, whether it's something we talked about here, something else, a prayer request, anything, we want to invite you to come. Come if you need to just tell us something or come if you just need to give praise to God. But do that while we stand, while we sing.